Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Hello, everyone. It is now past midnight on Thursday. So clearly, when you decide to take on a, an ambitious project while maintaining a full-time job, this is what will happen. But clearly, I'm having a ton of fun, and I have a ton of excuses to see all my friends. Most of them I haven't seen for years, or some I'm in pretty close contact with. So living in their brains, uh, in their heads, are quite interesting when you conduct interviews such as this. But anyway. You are listening to episode number three, which is part two of my conversation with Josh Green on the Face World podcast. So if you haven't listened to episode two, part one, I highly recommend that you do so. However, just like a show such as CSI, you could start listening to this part and then go back to the previous one if needed. Let's see. Josh Green has enormous amount of brain power. And he is not afraid to speak his mind. This helps us not to stay at the surface level, but really dive in very deep on any topic. Josh will give you all he has. In this episode, Josh talks about his most recent book published、um, called Spreadable Media, which was published in 2013. So this book talks about how content moves through network economy. The value and meaning that are then attached to the content. The core of our conversation focuses on why it's more important about the action and multitude of people, the roles they play, and not so much or not exclusively the content itself. The same findings, conclusions, also apply to Justin Bieber on the things that you might not thought about that significantly contributed、uh, to his success. So tune in. No need to take notes. All the show notes, links, and other resources are at your fingertips by going to faceworld.com. That again is f e i s w o r l d. Thank you so much. Authored, I've written multiple books, and I—that's exactly where I kind of want to dive into、sure. next, if you don't mind. So, three books you've written.、Um, two books. Two books. I don't、I'm、know、sorry. what my third book may have been. <laughs> um, I saw three on LinkedIn. Why is that? I have no idea. I just Maybe I wrote、two. a third book. <laughs> Somebody published on your behalf. Yeah, so it's, it's wonderful. People can certainly find you and see your influence、yeah. uh, in a very noticeable way, but. You know, I, there's one book、mm-hmm. I kind of want to talk about. Sure, is Spreadable Media. Yes, published in January 2013. Yes, so hopefully you still remember a thing or two from yes. that. Yes.、Um, so if you don't mind, maybe just give us give the、uh, audience a, a quick overview of what it is and what type of interesting problems it aims to solve or address. Sure, Spreadable Media is a book that I wrote with Henry Jenkins, who's a professor now at USC,、um, and、uh, Sam Ford. Who was a student of both mine and Henry's when we were at MIT together?、Um, Sam works for a、um, PR firm called Peppercom,、um, and the three of us、uh, had started some work many, many years ago 
um, about um, the way that content moves through sort of network the network economy, um, the role that that audiences and fans play in promoting content, um, the values and meanings that gets attached to content as it as it moves, um, and the book Spreadable Media uh, looks at the logics that help us understand um, how. Uh, content moves around the internet through interpersonal networks, through digital networks, um, the ways that companies are taking advantage of that and what consumers are doing, um, fans, audiences, uh, amateur media makers, pro-ams, uh, in order to, um, to participate. So the work started many, many years ago as a deconstruction of the proposition of viral. Right? The idea that you can create a piece of content that in and of itself you know, contains some kind of unique specialness that compels people um, you know, to, to share and to you know, promote and to pass it along. Well, there's a whole lot of really difficult ideas um, with the proposition of, of, of viral content. Um, I think it's a flawed metaphor for describing the way that, that content spreads because it pushes the onus onto the content. It suggests that, you know, that there is something in nature. It's a very scientific view of the way that, you know, that, that material, you know, um, travels around. When I say scientific, I want to contrast it with uh, a cultural perspective, which says that, you know, that content m is shared because people share it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the act of share, yes, we can reduce the barriers, by making it easier to share content with one click buttons, whole mechanical things we can do. One click buttons, encouragement, inducement, competitions, um, you know, to share, um, uh, rewarding people for sharing a lot, for being good sharers. You know, all of these things can encourage content to mm -hmm. spread, but we still need to, you know, there, there are still individual motivations. Even if they are, hey, I would like to be the number one most sharingest person, you know, <laughs> on Facebook. Like, that is an individual motivation that, that is more about the actions of people than it is about the nature of the content itself. Um, and so we started by looking at, at the ways that, that this, this metaphor of viralness was being used to describe material, right? It's very attractive for a creative agency because it suggests that if we just think and create hard enough, we'll create some magical something that everyone will just oh, we'll sweep them up and they won't be able to help themselves. <laughs> well, and of course, that's not how the world works. Right, I share content with somebody else because it helps to reinforce the bond that I have with them. Right, and that bond might come in a variety of forms. It might make me look funny. It might make me look uh, smart. It might, you know, bring joy to a community. Right, it might help me. Uh, might give my mum a nice little laugh. It might advance my political agenda. It might mm -hmm. enable me to incite a riot. Um, you know, these are all the, the multitude of reasons that people share content. So the proposition behind Spreadable Media was that if you wanted to understand the ways that material moves through the internet, through networked uh, economies, you needed to look at the role that people played in distributing content, not at the exclusively at the content itself. I see. Right? Yes, there are things within content that will, you know, there, there, we do, there is such a thing as successful content. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the challenges, but is it's very difficult to determine what successful content is um, before it has become successful. That is very fascinating. I have like two follow-up questions mm -hmm. Give them right to me. now. <laughs> 
I love how you use the term difficult ideas、mm. in the process. I want to understand like what are some of the two to three difficult or what make you know sort of what makes them challenging, and、uh, that's sort of.、Uh, Part one and、mm-hmm. two, as、mm-hmm. you're articulating this, just make it very clear to our audience that when this book was published in January 2013, of course, it was written and prepared way before. Started the work in 2009. Wow! So it's a four-year process. That is before you had a peek into the advertising agency. Absolutely. Report, you know. So how how has that changed? Of You know, because you witness a lot of the things、yep. possibly against contradicts to what you state in the book. Things that don't do the do's、right. and don'ts. Probably you witness equal. Let's just right. You know, right. Right. trying to be pleasantly say that equal balance of do's and don'ts. And like how、sure. how to interpret all that? So、um, on the topic of difficult ideas,、um, I think that you know difficult ideas are.、Um, I don't know if I would use. I don't know that I use the expression "difficult ideas" very often. I really like complex problems, right? I,、um, but the 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 thing that makes、uh, violence a difficult idea is is it's very like it's it it makes plain sense.、Mm-hmm. Like when you look at it, you're like, oh, I see how that works.、Mm-hmm. But when you dig into it, that's actually not how it works at all.、Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that makes it so difficult is that you know, in order to understand what it is. How it operates, you know, what is to to describe the um, um, the process that the notion of viral tries to sum up. You need to actually look at a complex interplay of other factors, right? And so this connects, I think, to your second question.、Um, you know, I I have spent a career, my my academic work. When I did my PhD, it was partly about、um, television branding strategies and the mobilisation of foreign programming、um, in Australia and its reception. And so that was about looking in order to understand the meaning that a set of programs had for an audience. You needed to look at the industrial factors that brought them to market. So why was that program? And I studied Dawson's Creek in my dissertation work. So you know why was that program successful in the Australian context? Had to do with a range of factors that had to do with the type of program it was. You know、um, uh, other programs which were successful at the same time,、um, the way that it was、um, programmed and scheduled on the network,、um, the brand purposes that the network was trying to achieve,、mm-hmm. the economic logics that made, say, importing a U.S. teen drama make sense,、uh, the ways that that audiences、uh, came around that program, the the alternative programs they had. Um, their contemporary experience and how that、uh, you know contributed to the success of the program, advertising materials. You had to look at the celebrity culture. So you know, in order to understand why, to answer the question, you know, why was Dawson's Creek successful,、um, you know, on Australian television in two thousand and four, whenever it was. You need to understand all of those factors, right? Because all of those factors, you know, to differing degrees, contribute to the success of that program. Mm-hmm. So, <coughs> excuse me. Since coming in, so so I had spent a career studying、um, the way that content was used by、uh, industry, if you like.、Mm-hmm. So industry, in this sense, being、um, say、uh, the broadcasters, because、uh, I studied television more than I did film.、Um, but still, studying broadcast television these days, you know, all. 
um, broadcast material in the US is produced by a, a conglomerate, right? So um, uh, 20th Century Fox, um, which is the studio, has uh, 20th Century Television, which is the TV station that produces content, some of which runs on um, local Fox affiliates, some of which runs on other broadcast stations, some of which goes to cable. You know, and so in order to understand the interplay of those things, you have to understand how all of those things work together. So I had spent uh, my academic career looking at, at the way that industrial factors worked to create, distribute, take advantage of um, uh, content, if you like, which is a terrible term for things, but anyway. Um, and so it's been interesting since coming into the to the advertising industry in particular, um, and I'd done some work with advertisers over the years before I came into the industry, but coming into the industry in particular, one of the things that has been so revealing is um, I, I believe that the the uh, the cultural understandings that we were reaching for in spreadable media in contrast to scientific propositions around include two pictures of a dog and your content will be successful. Um, I believe that those cultural factors are even more important because when you look around any um, corporation, you realize that corporations are made of people, right? Like Soylent Green, they're made of people. They chew people up and they spit people out. Um, but they, you know, but they, they are made of people and, and those people are acting from in the ways that we all act as people, right? They are acting based on imperfect sets of knowledge. They are acting, you know, under time constraints. They are acting to the best of their ability with the tools that they have, right? But they don't have complete and full agency, right? They need to make meaning and 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 the objects that they are producing and creating from the tools that they have to hand, mm -hmm. not perhaps from the tools that they would choose. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they they you know you may have imperfect research. You may have no time to do research. You may not be able to, you know, fully test something in the market. You may not be able to control the testing. You may think that testing is a thing that you need to do. You know, you may have to do it at a certain budget. You may, you know, be understaffed. You may be overworked. Like all of those things produce a set of um, conditions in which we all, you know, create the things that we create. And so when we think about like why does content work, mm -hmm. having now worked within the industry, you know, I understand I think I think we were right from outside the industry. Sometimes nobody knows why content works. It just does. And sometimes somebody thinks content's going to work because they've got good taste. Mm -hmm. <coughs> taste I think taste is incredibly important for um for uh succeeding in the world, right? Um I think that you can try and you can rely on a whole bunch of data and that's one way to get certainty. Um, but if you have good taste, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you, if you are able to make decisions that feel right and justify them on the basis of, um, uh, I think a broad set of, um, uh, general happenings, mm -hmm. um, you know, then I think, you know, you will, you will do just as well. And in fact, probably better, um, mm -hmm. than somebody, you know, who, who, who relies so heavily on, on data points. You know, I think that taste and good taste comes from having a distinct point of view, um, keeping up to date on, you know, the, the, the cultural mood mm -hmm. of, um, 
uh, of the populace. So what are people, however defined, local people, your people, people at work, people in a nation, the audience you're thinking about, whoever those people might be, but you know, how are people um, uh, thinking about things? What are the things that they're enjoying? Uh, what are the things that they're rejecting? What are the things that they might be lacking? I think that all of those sorts of fuzzy factors contribute to having good, good, good mm -hmm. taste. I think if you have good taste, you you know you are just as likely to create good content and content that resonates mm -hmm. with people because it connects to something that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. I think that's a. I, I would like to kind of drill them a little deeper to understand what is your definition or what is the definition in spreadable, spreadable media in terms of good taste. But so, for instance, there are a lot of contents out there, really mm -hmm. popular. Mm -hmm they do not necessarily represent good taste. For example, I mean, I, I find, you know, Justin Bieber, I know he's very talented. Sure. I'm way older than, sure. say, my cousins who understand exactly how he got here sure. and why. Um, but so, for instance, not to assume that was ever used as a case study, but, you know, looking at that viral video sure. uh, and many other thousands of videos sure. out there, what are some of the analogies or, you know, does how does that play into the survivor bias and uh, right. you know kind of painting the bullseye after the arrow has hit and all right. these things and right. I could argue that I think the book is painting not just speaking to the book mm -hmm. but a mm -hmm. philosophy of things we can control versus things we cannot control sure. and I can argue there are most of the things we can't really control or pr even predict um, sure but if we think so let's think <laughs> about Justin Bieber and, and, and <laughs> just just I mean I spent Many hours of everyday thinking about Justin Bieber. Uh, no, if um, you know the the so one of the things that we talk about in the in the book is that if you're looking to try and understand mm -hmm. content which is going to be successful, um, you know you need to look at um uh, the things that people are celebrating themselves and the mm -hmm. things that they're in, you know that that they are enjoying because we have so many venues these days that provide us uh, as audiences with ways to promote support you know, um, enrich and reward content that we enjoy. So Justin Bieber was a Canadian busker when he, I mean, you know, he <laughs> was a child star, but actually he wasn't a child star. He, <coughs> excuse me, he had some song and dance training, but Justin Bieber was a, um, was busking and, uh, his, uh, a, a recording of him busking was placed onto YouTube where it was discovered by an A&R person and went into a, a typical talent development pipeline. Um, you know, like that's the story of Justin Bieber, mm -hmm. right? Like, why is Justin Bieber successful? You know, he, uh, when he was, uh, when someone saw him busking and uploaded that video to YouTube, and I don't know who it was, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Justin Bieber, Probably you know, there was, it may have been his mother who, you know, who may have been spreading that content, not because she was filled with some kind of compelling need mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because of his angelic voice, but because she was a proud mother, mm -hmm. you know, because she wanted her, you know, her boy to be recognized, right? Um, if it was not his mother, it may have been somebody who was amazed mm -hmm. at how good this, you know, this mm -hmm. busker was and wanted to share that with people because, mm -hmm. you know, they felt some sense of awe mm -hmm. or wonder, you know, and they wanted others to mm -hmm. confirm you know, that what they thought was wonderful was wonderful mm -hmm. and perhaps experienced some joy, you know, themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Already we have two different narratives for why Justin Bieber may have succeeded that have nothing to do with 
you know, yeah. his ability to sing mm -hmm. affected our brains in a particular way that we mm -hmm. became zombies and could not help but listen to Justin <laughs> Bieber. Um, you know, uh, talent scouts have for a long time been trawling these these public pro-am networks. My first book was about YouTube and the mm. way that you know the way that the way that YouTube functions within within society um, as a platform to launch careers. Um, you know, and, and talent scouts who you know, A and R guys and gals and 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 people who break acts. Um, you know, who used to spend their time going to shows. Mm -hmm. You know, in order to find something that resonated with them, that they thought would resonate with other audiences, right? Mm -hmm. They are people who have taste um, and who leverage their taste, you know, to try and make successes. Um, so someone, you know, found this video of Justin Bieber and thought there is a talent here. He has a number of factors mm -hmm. that will work. He will, you know, satisfy the things that we know that make, you know, young boys successful with teenage and preteen girls, mm -hmm. right? He was attractive, he had an angelic voice, he was like baby-faced, mm -hmm. he had a certain you know degree of talent, right? He could do all of the mechanical things. He could sing and he could dance and mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if he can act, but maybe he could, right? Triple threat. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so already, you know, he, you know, he, 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 he meets a, a cultural profile that we have mm -hmm. for a successful type of act. And he has some of the necessarily talents mm -hmm. in order to do that um he was also willing to work mm -hmm. right because there are many people who might satisfy the first two but who are mm -hmm. not interested mm -hmm. who are too lazy too shy, you know too shy exactly right yeah. but you know but Bieber was willing to you know willing to work yeah. um then you know they 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 had a very uh you know they had a mold mm -hmm. that they could put him in mm -hmm. all you need to realize is that Justin Bieber for that A and R guy or girl, or for that record company, mm -hmm. was one of a number mm. of shots that they were taking. Yeah, right. Exactly. He wasn't the only one. Yeah. Right? Now, please excuse me, people on the internet, if I have the tale of Justin Bieber wrong, and if he's pulled himself up by his boots and did it all on himself, you know, on his own, and he's an independent artist. That's mm. a completely different story. But you know, I do not believe that's the case. So please write, send me emails if I have the <laughs> Justin Bieber story wrong. Um, but the point I want to point out is that is that Justin Bieber may have succeeded against the odds, right? Mm -hmm. He may have been one of a hundred acts mm -hmm. that they launched that year. And indeed, he may have been one of a dozen, two dozen, mm -hmm. right? Potential, like, male vocalist soloists that mm -hmm. they, you know, mm -hmm. that they launched that year. Mm -hmm. So one of the greatest challenges of working within the creative industries um, is that it is defined by the principle that nobody knows, mm -hmm. right? Like, nobody knows what is going to succeed. Mm -hmm. You can have all of the factors yeah, and yeah. still fail. That, that is true. I mean, not to say that people who didn't end up to be in Justin Bieber's position to say they have failed. Um, there are a lot of really successful YouTube videos by millions of clicks, and, and they're immediately invited to, say, someone like Ellen DeGeneres' like, show. Sure. Right? And how many of those people, and from little kids to adults, really had a career out of that? Very few of those, right? And not even... Yeah. And you, you can even take it one step down, mm -hmm. Faye, and you can look at the number of people who are similarly talented, mm. shall we say, who upload videos that don't get hundreds of views. Yeah, exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. I was looking at this thing earlier in the week. Um, there is a wonderful, uh, there's a website that um, auto plays uh, videos on YouTube that have um, very low views. Mm. So you can watch videos that nobody has watched. 
And some of them are, you know, mistakes, right? Some of them are someone accidentally left the left the camera on and, you know, didn't understand that they were uploading it to YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are attempts of people. It's like all of the blogs mm -hmm. in the world that have one post, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because somebody had a big idea about how they're going to do this. And then they realize that, that it's a lot harder than they, you know, than they than they were ready for, right? So there yeah. are all of these like video blog series that have the single video. All mm. of these channels that have been abandoned over the years after people made three videos, let's say, mm. and they weren't as funny as they thought they were, or they didn't get the audiences, or they just got busy doing something else, you know? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> it's possible to see a multitude of potential Justin Bieber's, shall we say, mm -hmm. who are undiscovered and will remain undiscovered mm -hmm. because you know, the cost of launching a Justin Bieber is, is significant, mm, you know, no especially doubt. if you're looking to make, you know, this sorts of returns that a large recording artist or industry is and that, you know, that requires them to, you know, succeed. So they need to launch multiple Justin Bieber's in mm -hmm. order to try and find one that, that sticks. Yeah, so and fascinating. It's, it's those sorts of logics that I find so fascinating about the way that we think about um, content and cultural networks mm -hmm. um, and, you know, digital culture today. Yeah, it, it's really fascinating. Um, but I do have one last area I want to touch base on, is Sorry. the fact that you've written not just one book, mm -hmm. multiple books. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you posted long-form articles all over the place, which we'll gather them and, and find them. What I find fascinating is publishing a book mm -hmm. these days, or arguably like 15, 20 years ago, not an easy task for anybody. Sure anyone and proofreading sure. and God knows what else. I'm, I'm not very experienced in this domain. Sure. And I've heard of encountered many very talented people or people very passionate about writing, always talked about publishing their own mm. books, um, but haven't really been able to, to, sure. to, to do written books. And what is that process right. uh, you followed? And then some of the challenges and sort of your advice to experienced you sure. know, writers as well as sure. So I hate writing. <laughs> That's I, easy. I absolutely abhor it, um, and I don't. I You're don't a great do writer. Can I, I just stop that? Very often. Thank you very much. Yeah. But I don't. I don't do it very often. It's like pulling teeth. Um, so I, I hate writing. In fact, one of the reasons I, I left the academy was that I didn't like having to write for a living. Um, so I write with other people. Um, so I, you know, I wrote with Henry and and Sam. We wrote Spreadable Media, and so the three of us wrote, and I actually did a lot of editing. You know, um, you know, uh, the three of us would write sections, um, you know, we would edit and revise them, we passed the manuscript around, we wrote the whole thing in, in Google Docs um, so that we could collaboratively work on it, we divided it up, we wrote outlines, we went, you know, through all the processes. Writing a, a book is a lot like writing a college essay mm -hmm. uh, or an essay whilst you're at college, you know, where you, you know, you sort of work out what you want to say, you write an outline and then you procrastinate and uh, then eventually you do it. Mm -hmm. um, my first book I wrote with my friend Jean Burgess. Uh, she was in Australia at the time. I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so we would have writing parties. <coughs> well, after we had determined the, uh, we'd written the outline for a chapter, um, I would do it in the evenings and she would do it in the morning because that was the time zone lineups. We would turn Skype on and we would sit and we would write mm. collaboratively together. Um, so I hate writing, so my advice is to write with, you know, write with friends um, because it means you don't have to do all of the writing yourself. Um, you know, there is an awful lot, and my books are academic books, so they're published by academic publishers, so they need to be peer-reviewed, mm. so they get reviewed. Um, you know, it's not quite like a peer-reviewed journal article, but they certainly, you know, they get sent out to 
to three or four reviewers who send you a multitude of comments. So, you know, the writing process is an incredible process of hurry up and wait. Mm. Um, you know, you write and you write and that, you know, costs you a good chunk of your soul. Um, and then you send off this thing with which you are either uh, incredibly happy, incredibly disappointed, or usually some point in between. Mm -hmm. um, the wad of papers goes to your editor, who then reads it, and they hopefully they've read you know, it progressively as you're going, but they read it, they get very excited, they send you back a bunch of notes, you then find time to sit and edit all of those, you know, make those, those edits, those changes. Um, and then uh, in the academic world, it's then sent out to readers who read it, and that takes a couple of weeks. I mean, I've read books as a, you know, as a reader for other people, um, you know, and, and I always try and do it relatively quickly, but some people take a long time. I remember we got one review for Spreadable, and Spreadable Media is 500-something pages. Like, it was a significant book for anybody to read. Mm -hmm. But we got one review back so long after we had sent it out mm. that we had all forgotten that we'd actually sent it out to a third person. Um, and so we sent it back and we were like, we've already made a bunch, we've finished the next round of edits. Anyway, so you do that and then, you know, you make a bunch of edits and then it goes into the production process. And, you know, these days that is inordinately long, um, particularly at an academic press. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, and you need to proofread it and all of this sort of stuff. And, you know, it leaves me wondering quite often... Um, what specific role publishers play within the publishing process. Um, because, you know, they used to be responsible for a whole bunch of uh, mechanical uh, come-to-market factors, right? Printing, books, typesetting, proofreading, editorial advice, um, uh, distribution networks, sales mm -hmm. functions, um, you know, in some sort of uh, promotional network, um, as well as, as a brand imprimatur. So, you know, when you, when you publish with a certain press, um, you know, they have a certain reputation. They can place your book alongside other books mm -hmm. um, so that it gets noticed and those sorts of things. Um, you know, I think editorial guidance is absolutely necessary. Um, but some of the value of the other pieces I, I, I do wonder about. Mm -hmm. You know, when I say all of that and I turn my nose up at a self-published book and would not self-publish a book, mm. um, you know, there's still a sort of a stink of um, amateurism perhaps mm -hmm. to self-publishing, although that's changing. Um, but there's still, I, I, think, I think there's still a stink of um, enthusiasm <laughs> to self-publishing and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll explain myself because these are the sorts of comments that get me in trouble on the internet. Um, so I think that you know sometimes when you see a self-published book the, the assumption is true or not that it hasn't been through uh, uh, as rigorous an editorial process as uh, you know, a press published book, and if that's the case, uh, have the ideas been vetted as? Now, this is going to get me in trouble on the internet. Have the ideas <laughs> been vetted as worthy mm. for contribution to public thought? Now, I think that that is a crackpot idea, right? I think lots of crackpot ideas. No, I think lots of ideas that have not been vetted, mm -hmm. you know, are worthy of contribution to the public sphere, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we have ideas. That's why we have a public sphere. That's one of the wonders of being able to publish right now. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think that there are, you know, I'm not trying to make an argument about worthy and unworthy books because there is a lot of politics mm -hmm. and a lot of class. Mm -hmm. So factors of class and factors of politics, factors of access, factors um, of privilege all affect mm -hmm. whether you can get published or not, right? I, for instance, was privileged enough to be working at a university where my job could be publishing a book, mm -hmm. right? So for a good period of you know, the years between 2007 and 2009, 10, I spent a good portion of many days working on manuscripts. Mm -hmm. That's a privilege that a lot of people don't, don't have, right? It was to a certain extent my job. One part of my job was to produce books. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so, you know, I think that it is, it is difficult to get published and it comes with, uh, you know, a certain certain range of things, right? Um, publishers are still gatekeepers, right? They make determinations about what will or will not fit within their press, and that's usually based on what they do or they don't think that they can sell. Mm -hmm. So at what point did we decide that the free market, mm -hmm. right, capitalism, should be the ultimate deciding factor about the ideas that get out into the world? Mm -hmm. And of course the wonder of the internet is that it has enabled us to step around mm -hmm. those logics, right? You can put anything on the internet and indeed self-publishing democratizes publishing, right? Because it does not need to be tied to the logics of the free market or the log logics of capitalism mm -hmm. in order for your idea to get out into the world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and, if we, and if we decide that that's, that that's what, uh, that, 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 that is the filter, then we end up you know, in an environment you know, that is problematic. All of that said, there's still something about self-publishing, and maybe it's just my snooty academicness. Maybe it's that I'm still, you know, struggling um, within the sort of amazement and wonder at someone else validating ideas. Mm -hmm. um, there's something about self-publishing that still gives me pause as an avenue to go down, and I think it has to do with the proposition that ideas have been tested and found val a valuable contribution. Do you consider podcasting <coughs> and blogging that type of outlets also as part of self-publishing uh, or strictly? So that's really interesting because like, uh -huh. so they, they are self-publishing platforms, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, no one needs to, you don't need to ask anyone if you can run PhaseWorld, right? Mm -hmm. right? Now, is PhaseWorld a valuable contribution to knowledge? Prob probably, mm -hmm. right? You're a clever person. Um, <laughs> you know, I think you have good taste and I think you're interested in other people who are clever. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you probably have an idea about what your audience wants to hear about. Mm -hmm. And so you'll probably produce content mm -hmm. that is appealing to them, you know, say, this interview which no one will want to listen to um, you know so you know it is a self-publishing platform <clears throat> um, it is of value right we have many more perspectives mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. and we have access to many more perspectives mm -hmm. thanks to podcasting let's say mm -hmm. than we did when we had to rely on just the radio mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. one of the wonders of the internet is that it opens up an amazing amount of bandwidth to us, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be that we only had a limited bit of 
radio spectrum that we could use, mm -hmm. let's say, even though we have whole empty channels and whatever, anyway, whatever. you know, it's the broadcasting spectrum is still a finite thing. Mm -hmm. The internet, there's nothing finite about it, right? Mm -hmm. We can just keep stacking servers on mm -hmm. and increasing the space, which means you can get your content out there into the world mm -hmm. and should, right? There have been a multitude of wonderful things that have happened, you know, that have emerged out of uh, the democratization of publishing that has come about as a result of the internet. Mm -hmm. um, why I'm still uneasy with self-published books mm -hmm. might just be because maybe it's been maybe I have discovered that I am a snob. <laughs> maybe that's what the problem is. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I should also warn you that I have a tendency to think while I speak rather than thinking then speaking. <laughs> um, no, that's totally fine. Um, I. You know, I, I was, uh, I find the, the publishing process to be fascinating. You've probably given a lot more insight to sort of what everyday people are even exposed to. Sure. You know, that was really interesting. And part of that sounds like a green card process because it takes like <laughs> years of unpredictable next steps and uh, hurry up and wait. There's lots of, uh, a lot of things along that line. I'm fascinated by the fact that you've written, I don't, I can't speak, you know, for everybody else in the sure. agency, you may be one of the few people, very few people who actually publish books, written books that are 500, you know, like 500 pages sure. long. And I wonder when you go to interviews, whether with Arnold or elsewhere, people are like, oh my goodness, this is such a clearly uh, differentiator on your resume. Sure. And I'm smiling right now because it takes a lot for a project manager to say, consider PMP, you know, sort of, uh, you know, getting certified. It's like, oh, that, you know, it's a two hour exam. There's a book I need to read. But the fact that you have to write one, has that like contributed to your own career path is, you know, giving you an edge? Interestingly, interesting, interesting, interesting. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, look, yes, you know, yes, it has, mm -hmm. um, particularly, you know, the topics that I have written about are topics that have, you know, been of interest, you know, in my professional career. Very relevant, yeah. Interestingly, however, <clears throat> the fact that I'm not currently writing and haven't written anything significant for the last 12 months, um, I may have said six months earlier, six to 12 months, um, you know, is actually uh, starting to get in the way, shall we say, mm. of career advancement. Um, because, uh, you know, the position that I am in um, is one where people expect to be able to read, you know, to hear my, my mm. thoughts, right? It's, it's uh, it is not just, it makes me sound so pompous. Um, it is, it is not just enough um, to... Um, do clever things in the service of your work. Part of your responsibility as somebody who is a member of a community, mm -hmm. shall we say, and I'm a member of the advertising community now, um, you know, is to enrich that community, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that we do that principally as human beings is by sharing our thoughts on stuff. You know, right. So things like I totally, I'm totally <laughs> with you on this, like Future M or MyTex, whatever Absolutely. those conferences. Absolutely. You, you almost need participating in yeah. conferences. You need to be writing things mm. because we are all looking to be better at our jobs. Mm. We are all looking to be smarter. We are all trying to find a new way to you know to do things, and the you know the ways that we uncover those things are often 
you know, not by sitting in a room pontificating uh, or, you know, being on our own and pondering things, but it is by sharing our thoughts, right? It is through dialogue, I believe, mm -hmm. that knowledge and understanding is created. Mm -hmm. um, I believe. I think that's probably objectively true. It is through dialogue that knowledge and understanding is, is created. And so, you know, part of one's responsibility as a member of a community is to help that community get smarter. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, answer, which I totally did not <laughs> expect at all. So it's, it's very fascinating. Um, is there, you know, I'm significantly gone over, people say that what is, the, what is the appropriate length of a podcast or a book? As long as it takes. Uh, <laughs> so I'm 20 minutes over. No, usually I dare say, you know, they, they you know, finish, finish what you've done and then remove one thing. Um, you know, so I dare say it is probably not as long as it takes, but significantly less, right? Mm -hmm. um, perhaps we should record long and edit down. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely going to keep those bits and pieces where I'm going to get into trouble. Are those I'm going to definitely... Yeah, keep those ones. Yeah, keep those ones. Might be the first time I've gotten trouble on the internet. No, I, I think it's fascinating that a lot of... What's really unique about podcasting, especially mm -hmm. the good ones, is instead of just touching the surface, mm -hmm. people really dive in pretty deep. That's the joy of the interview. Yeah. So it's the joy of the interview. And I think we really connect, not just us, I think the audience connect to the speakers on a whole mm -hmm. new level. Agreed. And I would welcome people from the agency who have worked with you, but only in a setting, a meeting, a project for three months, but not really knowing what you're as simple as, what, mm. what is your daily routine? What makes mm. you so smart? I'm not here to you know, just brag about you, but the fact that, you know, one, that, you know, the list of people I'm going to interview mm -hmm. are, I consider them very accomplished in mm -hmm. their fields and very much liked by their people, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. we interact mm -hmm. with. That is a really unique set of skills because mm -hmm. usually you get one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oftentimes, this guy is so smart, but oh my God, he really, he destroys meetings. He never, agree, he couldn't agree with anybody. But, um, you know, one of the feedback that I got two weeks after, I mean, we, the fact that you and I joined on the same day, just going to bring it up real quick, but like two weeks in, people will talk to me to say that, oh my goodness, you know, Josh was in this like XYZ client meeting and brought everybody to church and really just so glad to be able to work with someone at his caliber. So yeah. I, you know, this comes from someone who's more senior, older, and, um, I found that to be very uh, mm. impressive. Mm. So with that said, you know, I don't want to take up your entire afternoon. Are there any last things that you, you know, for instance, questions you wish that people would ask you? And some of that may be related to the misconceptions of what you do. But what are some of the questions that you wish people would ask? Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, no, I wish I could. What are the questions that I wish people would ask me? Um, uh... I just really like talking about things, so it doesn't really, um, so anything, um, I think we got to talk about mostly, we didn't talk about bicycles, but I really like bicycles, but I just like bicycles. Um, what are the questions that I wish people asked me? Um, I get to talk often with people about what it is that I do and what it is that interests me, and I am fascinated by the way that, um, that we are navigating a rapidly changing set of uh, conditions. Mm. We think about our agency as human beings. We think about what we have control over. We think about what we ask each other to do, um, you know, in our interactions, you know, in, in, in business and in, and in life. 
Um, you know, I think we are we're passing through a moment right now. Well, I don't think we're passing through a moment. I think we are witness to a set of you know um, uh, uh, significant changes. Um, and so, you know, I have enjoyed this conversation because it has been so freewheeling. It's been a chance for me just to pontificate on those things um, a little. So I don't know that I think there's anything that I think that you should have asked me. But my last question to you, mm-hmm. this will be a, one of the rapid fire questions. Mm-hmm. What would you say to your 18 to 20 year old self? Oh, my God. Um, uh, I would tell my 18 to 20, uh, I, would, I would say relax. Um, Are you Oh, wow. Are you I would, kidding me? Yeah. I would tell my 18-year-old self to relax. I'd tell him to buy that motorcycle because I didn't <laughs> buy it until I was much, much older. Um, no, significantly, I would, tell, I would tell my younger self to relax. Fascinating. Thank you so much. You're welcome.